Jewish views on settlements in the West Bank, the Knesset this week have moved one step nearer to legalizing thousands of homes, Margaret Thatcher and the Middle East, the new book that tells us exactly what the Iron Lady thought of the Jewish state, and the coolest way to raise money for Kishalon. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. In Israel, after a heated debate, the Knesset passed the preliminary reading of a controversial bill known as the Regulation Bill that would help legalise West Bank outposts which have been built on Palestinian land. It must pass three additional votes to become law. The Israeli Attorney General has said the legislation violates international law and he could not defend it before Israel's Supreme Court. Here, a white supremacist from Somerset who posted a series of vile and anti-Semitic comments about the Jewish MP Luciana Berger has been found guilty of racially aggravated harassment and sentenced to two years in prison. After a three-day trial at the Old Bailey, it was revealed that Joshua Bonil Payne was already serving a 40-month jail term for inciting racial hatred at an anti-Jewish protest in Golders Green last year. After the trial, Ms Berger said she was concerned about an increase in the far right across Europe and in the UK. The president of the Union of Jewish Students has admitted being wrong to believe that an anti-Israel student leader was sorry for her alleged anti-Semitic comments. Josh Seitler had a meeting with the NUS president Malia Bouatia in order to try and rebuild trust, but she apparently suggested Jewish students' anger was misplaced or invalid. Ms. Bouatia apologised for causing offence, but didn't actually apologise for what she'd said. These were comments about the Zionist-led media and about Birmingham University being a Zionist outpost. A golden statue of the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu suddenly appeared in Tel Aviv's Rabin Square this week. It turned out to be a protest by the artist Itay Zalat, who'd created it over the course of two months, and who said his goal was to test freedom of expression and to have a dig at the idol-worship attitude of some Israelis towards Mr Netanyahu. It was removed by the artist after an order by City Hall. And finally, Burger King restaurants in Israel have introduced a donut burger for Hanukkah. Apparently, the Sufgani King is a whopper, with savoury donuts in place of buns. Sounds very fattening indeed. And that's the news. Here's the sport from Andrew. Thank you, Viv. Scott's cash kit said he fulfilled a dream when he netted a hat-trick for Wickham Wanderers in their 5-0 FA Cup win over Chesterfield. He said, It's something growing up I've dreamt about. Walking away with a match ball was brilliant. It was an amazing feeling. The biggest shock of the Maccabi League football season to date occurred last weekend when Division 2 side RCUKFC knocked out Premier Division side Oakwood A in the Peter Morrison Cup. Manager Abby Markovic said, There are no superlatives to describe this astonishing team. And finally, Russell Goldstein enjoyed a starring role for England's futsal team at the inaugural Four Nations Tournament. Scoring and creating goals in both their wins over Scotland and Northern Ireland, he said, The tournament was a great learning curve for me to help me develop at international level. Remember, you can catch up on all the latest Jewish sports at jewishnews.co.uk.
Andrew, thank you very much. Hello and welcome to this edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Clive Roslin and let's start, as we always do, with a look at your copy of The Jewish News for this week. And joining me to go through it is foreign editor Stephen Oreschuk and features editor Fran Wolfish. And welcome to you both, Stephen. Let's begin with the story on the front page. Right. Well, our editor, Richard Ferrer, and news editor, Justin Cohen, have been in Jerusalem this week speaking to Bibi Netanyahu, and they asked him what did he think about the Balfour centenary in the UK next year and plans by some to push the government to apologize for it. Netanyahu said... The response from critics to push for an apology spoke volumes about the conflict, the nature of the conflict. He said, yes, settlements are part of it. Yes, territory is part of it. But the main thing is the idea of a Jewish state. That's what people hate. That's why there will be no peace, essentially. And we made that our front page. That's an extraordinary reply, one would think. But there we are. So what, what is your comment about it, though? He speaks for the Jewish world. I understand why... He speaks for the Jewish world or the Israeli world? Uh, He thinks he speaks for the Jewish world. We in Britain tend to think he speaks for the Israeli world. He has always seen this as the problem being that the Palestinians and the Palestinian supporters have a more fundamental issue with Israel being the very concept of it. And he's brought that into his answer on Balfour. Most people, I would suggest, see that the problem is about borders and about territory. And I agree that it is an interesting comment and interesting because of his perspective on it. So, in fact, really, what what is much more important from perhaps most people's point of view is what they're doing about the settlements. Quite agree. And that is our lead story on page two. And what do you say about it on page two? We have covered a vote in the Knesset on Monday night that sent shockwaves around the Jewish world. This stems from 40 units near Ramelan, deep in the West Bank, in a, an illegal outpost called Amona. And these settlers have been there for 20 years. The pro-settlement lobby within the coalition, led by Jewish Home and, and their leader, Naftali Bennett, have repeatedly pushed for Amona to stay put and to be legalized. The Israeli Supreme Court thought otherwise. They ruled that this was privately owned Palestinian land and slated it for demolition on the 25th of December this month. So it all came to a head. And in essence, a backroom deal was done. Netanyahu wanted to respect the rule of law, wanted to respect the judge's verdict, and said Amona needs to go. But in return, he wanted his pro-settler parties within his coalition not to leave the coalition and therefore not to bring down the government. And so he's done a backroom deal that said, fine, we'll sacrifice Amona, but 55 other illegal outposts, in other words, another 55 areas built on privately owned Palestinian land will now retroactively be legalized. So in other words, Netanyahu's changed his mind, as it were. Netanyahu has allowed himself to... Change his mind. ...to be able to say, we uphold the judge's ruling and therefore Amona will go. But what Netanyahu's done is 
basically given legal cover to 4,000 settlers who, until this bill passes, did not have it. And what's your comment on it? We've reported the concerns from progressive Jewish groups within the UK, New Israel Fund, Yachad. These groups are concerned that whereby when Israeli governments and leaders say there is no compromise on the Palestinian side, that doing things like this undermine that, that position. Right. Now, one of the other things that you're talking about in this week's edition, Luciana Berger's Tormenta. Yes. Well, the verdict came in this week against Joshua Bonehill Payne who was found guilty of posting a series of vile anti-Semitic comments about Luciana Berger. Some of the vitriol he had against Luciana Berger was really quite awful. He essentially said that she was an evil money grabber. He compared her to a rodent, really horrible old anti-Semitic tropes, which he spread across social media. There was another incident where basically Bainhill Payne celebrated the 2,500 offensive tweets that Berger received during his Operation Filthy Jew. You know, it's just it's just really horrible stuff. He decided to single out Luciana Berger because she's a Jewish MP. And in fact, earlier this year, John Nimmo, you know, he was found guilty after making a death threat against Luciana Berger, saying she would get it like Joe Cox. It just seems to be some really nasty stuff. That's because horrifying. she's Yeah, she, you know, she's a woman, she's Jewish. Oh, great. You know, this is like a double whammy for her. And she's a high-profile female Jewish MP. Let's go get her. You know, she's suddenly become this, this symbol of attack from all these horrible anti-Semites. Let's hope he's not free to do anything awful again. But, you know, he's been found guilty of racially aggravated harassment. It is a step forward in the sense that, you know, he has got a criminal record. He has been found guilty and hopefully he'll stay away from Luciana Berger and other Jewish MPs out there. Let's hope so. He made these comments about Berger whilst he was on bail. Ah, right. Well, let's move on then to the Students' Union vote, which is also one of your main stories this week. It is. There's been a raging debate about whether Jewish students can define what is anti-Semitism and the difference between anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. The students are meeting uh, at their annual conference this coming Sunday. Amongst the things they have to decide are whether they will continue to work with the National Union of Students, which is currently led by Malia Boatia, who has in the past made comments such as Birmingham University is a Zionist-led outpost. She's a fierce Israel critic, but she says that's anti-Zionism and it's a political thing. It's not anti-Semitism and that she will defend Jewish students against anti-Semitism. That hasn't gone down very well with Jewish students, and now they're voting to consider whether they will continue working with NUS. They're not officially affiliated to NUS, so this would not be an official formal disaffiliation vote, but it would mean that they'd stop working together on things like anti-fascism campaigns. The other thing they need to decide is who is going to lead them, who will be the next UJS president. There are three candidates And one is a gentleman called Aaron Cohen, who is also, like Malia, a fierce critic of Israeli policy and has in the past supported the BDS or the boycott campaign. 
So that's what's going to happen. What's the view of the paper? The view of the paper is this is make or break time for Jewish students. I think the overwhelming feeling in the newsroom for what that's worth is that this would be a symbolic vote to to distance itself from the NUS at a time when really there needs to be more engagement and more dialogue. Oh, well, that's it. We'll have to leave it for a look at the paper for this week. But thank you both very much indeed. And don't forget, you can pick up your copy of the Jewish News every Thursday across London or read the e-version at jewishnews.co.uk. An Israeli bill to legalise thousands of settlements in the West Bank moved a step nearer to being passed this week. And the measure known as the Regulation Bill could see the late legalisation of 55 outposts and 4,000 housing units built on Palestinian land. The organisation Peace Now is one of a number who have made their feelings known about the proposals, and I've been speaking to Anat Ben-Nun, the Director of Development and External Relations, to find out more. I started by asking her, how does her organisation react to the proposed bill? This bill is very, very concerning for us. The implications of it are very far-reaching. The law is meant to legalize illegal settlements on illegal settlement construction on private Palestinian lands. Its consequences don't only have to do with moral issues, which basically we're talking here about the legalization of stealing private lands, but also the expropriation of 8,000 dunams and legalization of 55 illegal outposts. This may influence the possibility for a future two-state solution. So the fact that there's going to be a horrible situation because the Palestinians won't take the sitting down, will they? And if it does come to pass, there's going to be, what, is it too dramatic to say a war again between the two countries? Look, we, I, can't, I can't say that for sure. We've been seeing a deterioration in the situation on the ground in the past year with the Israeli government promoting settlements in new ways. So saying uh, this could deteriorate into violence, I mean, this is a possibility, but, but, but we, don't, we really can't say for sure. Do you think it's actually going to happen, though? Because I know a lot of people in Israel is against it. A lot of, even the government is against it, are they not? Yes, Benny Begin from the Likud party is opposing this legislation and was actually expelled from the committee dealing with this piece of legislation. The first reading will, will happen in a few minutes, really, and it is very likely to pass this first reading. There will be two readings after that, and we as Peace Now are doing everything that we can to fight against the passing of this law out in the street, through direct action, in the media, through social media, representing a large portion of the Israeli public that is opposing this legislation. Was the opposition leader, Chaim Herzog, was he being dramatic, overdramatic, when he called this passage a dark day for the Knesset and slammed the measure as national suicide? Would you go that far? I would. I would go that far because this is uh, really unprecedented. If we're looking at this law, this, this will be actually the first time that the Knesset is legislating a law that is beyond its own jurisdiction. The Knesset is not the sovereign in the West Bank. Uh, the sovereign is, is actually the army. 
even according to Israeli law. And this will be the first time it uh, does something like that and legislates a law that it's specifically for one population, meaning the settler population and not the Palestinian population, and only for the West Bank and not for Israel as well. This law is really going to stain the Israeli law book. It is against current Israeli law. It's contrary to international law. It's contrary to moral Jewish values. So this this is why we are so concerned about this piece of legislation. By the way, also the attorney general himself called this law unconstitutional and Netanyahu has warned that this law could lead Israel to the ICC. So if that's already being said by the prime minister and by the attorney general and everybody, can it really happen? It can, because we have seen laws in the past, you know, that we thought could never pass the Supreme Court, and they have. I mean, yes, there is a good chance that the Supreme Court will stop this legislation, but I would like to see this legislation being stopped now at a much earlier stage, because we have seen cases in the past where laws that are very harmful for freedom of speech or for the future of uh, both Israelis and Palestinians have passed in the Knesset. It seems that Netanyahu is being dragged by the settler leadership and by uh, the Jewish Home Party in this contest over who is more right-wing, even though he himself understands the devastating consequences. How do the people in general, do you know, how do the, the ordinary Israeli citizen feel about this? Are they, they can't possibly approve of it, can they? Well, I mean, the settler supporters are seeing this as, as a way of, of creating a one-state reality, of getting closer to annexation. And this is their standpoint. Peace Now supporters are, are understanding the consequences on the two-state solution and are also looking at what's being done on their behalf and are saying, I'm not willing to be a partner or, or I'm not willing to be stealing private Palestinian lands and private property. So, so there is, you know, a wide range of, of views on this, on this law, which is quite complicated and difficult to understand, I think, for ordinary Israelis. If the worst happened, what do you think would happen next? It's hard to tell, but I know that what will happen on the ground is a dramatic change, a dramatic expansion of outposts, which will turn into official settlements with official plans. And these plans will likely expand all of these small outposts into full-blown settlements, increasing the settler population a great deal and preventing viability of a future Palestinian state. It's really, I think, one of the most frightening things one has heard from Israel for a very long time. What will you do to really get it across to the general public that this thing must not happen? Look, I mean, we are doing this every day by educating the public about this bill, about ex explaining what it means on the ground for the future of the two-state solution, talking about with youth from all over the country, from north to south, about the Israeli interest in a two-state solution, the security interest and the is interest of Israel to remain Jewish and democratic, we're also engaged in direct action, speaking to members of Knesset, going out to the streets, demonstrating, and we'll continue doing all of that. If necessary, there is the possibility to, to go to the Supreme Court if this law passes. 
But as I said before, I mean, this is a last resort and we would like to see the law not going into second and third reading. Bearing in mind what has happened in the Europe with Britain and the European Union and what has happened in America with President-elect Trump being elected there when nobody thought it would happen, is it possible that in Israel this could happen? Look, we're seeing a shift to the right in the past few years, as you're saying, not only in Israel, but also as a global phenomenon. This is very concerning, and I think it is time for the opposition to stand strong against this. Don't be afraid of making bold statements, of, of leading and not just following the, the crowd and, and those radical uh, elements uh, of the right wing, not letting them set the conversation as what is happening today. So we have a lot of work to do in order to ensure that at least the possibility for a two-state solution remains possible on the ground and that in the Israeli public there will remain support for a two-state solution, which, as I said before, is also in the interest of Israel itself. Anat Ben-Nun, Director of Development and External Relations at Peace Now, talking to me there about her organization's concerns over the proposal to legalize thousands of homes in the West Bank. I'd like to point out that we do our best at the Jewish Views to try and get a balanced perspective on all stories we cover. The Jewish Home Party were invited to take part in this program. However, at the time of recording, they had yet to get back to us. The invitation, of course, extends to future editions should they wish to have their say. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition will be Our Jewish Schmooze. Today, Adam and I will be joined by founder of the Jewish Poetry Society, Judy Carberts, and homeopath David Needleman. We'll be discussing world leaders and their relationship with Israel. Plus, Diana Toman will be speaking to Dr. Beverly Jacobson, about her extraordinary achievement in a bid to raise money for Kishoron. But first, it was always known that Margaret Thatcher was a great friend to the Jews and Israel. A new book has been written by author Azriel Bamant called Margaret Thatcher and the Middle East uses recently declassified documents to offer a new appraisal of the Iron Lady's policy for the region. Entertainment and culture reporter Kate Fulton has been finding out more for us by speaking to Azriel Bermont, and she started by asking him what was his interest in Margaret Thatcher? This was actually originally my PhD thesis, and I guess the, the, the fascinating thing about Thatcher, one of the things is for her, the fact that she was an MP for Finchley, so she had a lot of interaction with the Jewish constituents, I was interested to see, you know, what sort of impact this had on policy towards Israel, also in general, just to see, you know, what sort of impact she had on foreign policy and on policy towards the Middle East. Okay, so for for those of us who, who don't know, what was the the background? What was going on with Israel historically, or in in the whole of the Middle East, when she came to power and and her relationship with Reagan and 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 how that was that sort of affected? Just just sort of set the ground for us. Well, just before she came to power, there was a relatively optimistic time. I mean, you have to remember the decade before she came to power, you had the Six-Day War. You know, Israel won a victory against the odds and captured the West Bank and Golan Heights, Sinai, 
And then six years later, then uh, she faced the, there was a Yom Kippur War, which was deeply traumatic for Israel. And what followed in, in 1978, 79, was the finally after trauma of war, Israel reached a hugely important peace accord with its Arab enemy, Egypt. That was just before Thatcher came to power. So, you know, just before she came to power, you had, you know, there was a hope that things were maybe starting to change in the Middle East. Finally, you had Israel's Arab enemy making peace with, with, with Israel. So that was what she thought was going to happen. She, she, she believed that she could do what, what no others had done. I suppose everybody so, thinks that. Menachem Begin was, of course, prime minister at the time, was a real hardliner, and people were very worried when he came into power in 1977. You know, there was a lot of concern, even within the Jewish community, about Begin. He was very extreme on, you know, opposed to any idea of giving up any, any land in the West Bank, opposed to the idea of a Palestinian states. But despite of that, this guy have signed a peace treaty with Anwar Sadat of Egypt and committed himself to giving up land in the Sinai. And Margaret Thatcher herself had strong links with the pro-Israel organizations such as the Friendship League the French, and also, of course, Conservative Friends of Israel. And there were people within the, the Foreign Office that were actually concerned about her, her ties with these you know, pro-Israel organizations. There were some within the Arab world who were wondering, you know, what sort of prime minister Thatcher would be. Would she be very, very pro-Israel because of, you know, the Finchley constituency and these links? So that was the that was the background. Right. And what made you? What just just turn, turn it to yourself a bit, and we will we will return to the book because we want to know some more details. But personally, you're um, are you historian? I am historian. Uh, although when I started my my doctorate, I just left the Israel Israeli government. I was working in the, in the Israel's foreign ministry, and uh, so I had a sort of background in, in government. But I am a historian in terms of my my doctorate and my my interests. Uh, I also over the last three years I've been also a research fellow at the Institute for National Security Studies. So I've also got a strong international security background. But my interests particularly are in um, Anglo-Israel ties and particularly uh, diplomatic history, Britain's policy in the Middle East, United States, Anglo-American policy, and of course, British diplomatic history. And was there something that particularly interested you about this specific period of time? I mean, you didn't focus on any other any other prime minister or any other time. What, what was it that made you want to, to look at this? Was it, was it something pivotal that happened during her time as prime minister? You could say that, I mean, as a background also, I, you know, lived through the period as, you know, growing up. So you, you could say that that might have influenced me to some degree. But also, I think I wanted to, to look at something that no one else had written about, because there's been a lot. I mean, so many people have written about American policy towards Israel. And a lot has been written about Britain's policy towards Palestine, you know, Balfour Declaration, and then perhaps the early years of Israel's existence the Suez crisis, for example, up until the Six-Day War, there's been, you know, a fair amount written. But after after the Six-Day War, relatively little, and certainly almost nothing about the Thatcher period. Right. I mean, and you've had a lot of books written about Margaret Thatcher's domestic policy, a number of now about the, her foreign policy in general, but certainly not Middle East, which is probably, it, it's understandable because, of course, Thatcher was best known in terms of foreign policy with, of course, the Falklands War, policy towards EEC, or as it was before it became the European Union, her relationship with Reagan. Also, we have to mention, of course, her Cold War stance, her relationship with Gorbachev, the Soviet Union, 
less about the Middle East. Right. You know? How did you go about doing your research for the book? First of all, the challenge, I faced a real challenge at the beginning because when I first started in my research, which originally right at the start, it was a PhD. And when I started out, there was no, no documents, pretty much nothing available as yet because of the 30-year rule. Normally documents in the National Archive at Kew, for example, are only released after 30 years have passed. So I had to put in quite a few freedom of information requests. And it was very time-consuming and not obviously a lot of material was not made available if it was very sensitive. But over time, more and more material has been released. You know, as, as time went on, it became a lot easier to do the research. So a lot of, a lot of my research was, was carried out at the National Archive at Kew and also at the Israel State Archive, uh, where I found also a lot of very fascinating material. And of course, interviews. I've interviewed a lot of, a lot of people, both in Israel and, and in Britain, Going back to the book, what would you say is the kind of sort of overall picture? It's probably far too uh, hard to to put into a few words. But if you could explain what overall picture did you did you glean from your research? If you could take a snapshot of what either either Mrs. Thatcher achieved or sort of set out to achieve, almost achieved, could have achieved. What would you how would you describe that? Well, I think for me, the most interesting um, findings uh, from my research were how the Cold War was very significant and how something that on the face of it you would think maybe wasn't necessarily related to Britain's policy towards the Middle East actually became very significant. And um, I'm talking about uh, Thatcher's concerns with the Soviet Union, her fear that events in the Middle East were going to be exploited by the Russians, the communists, to damage Western interests. And I'll give you an an example. For example, in December 1979, the Soviets invaded Afghanistan and Britain was very concerned about the fact that um, they wanted to put together a, a front and to rally the Arabs against the Soviets. And they were worried because the Soviets were championing the Palestinian cause. They were exploiting the Palestinian cause. They were making themselves out to be you know, strong friends of, of the Palestinians. At this point, even though Israel signed a peace agreement with, with Egypt, the Palestinian issue was not resolved. And the Arab world was up in arms over the fact that uh, it appeared that the Americans were supporting Israel, no matter what Israel did, they were automatically supporting Israel, whereas the Soviet Union was posing as the real as the champion of the Palestinian cause. So in Britain, over time, there was a lot of concern, and not just in Britain, Europe in general, concerned that uh, the Soviet Union was exploiting the Arab-Israel conflict and the West was losing out. OK, well, I mean, that's all. It's absolutely fascinating. There's so much more to know and there's so much more the detail. And presumably you've got uh, some interesting and surprising things to tell us. I believe you're coming to Jewish Book Week. So that's right. Yes. Anybody that wants to see you there can book tickets. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. What date are you coming to Jewish Book Week? The event is on the 26th of February. Right. And hopefully there'll be some tickets left. I think they've only just got on sale, so there should be. And look forward to, to meeting you then. I look forward to it as well. Author Azriel Bermant talking to entertainment and culture reporter Kate Fulton there about his new book, Margaret Thatcher and the Middle East. It's available now at various book retailers. In just a moment will be this week's Schmooze. A reminder that we now live stream the Schmooze on our Facebook page every Thursday evening from 7pm Greenwich Mean Time. That all-important address is coming 
but it means you can comment along as the discussion unfolds. And of course, we'll try and read those comments out as and when we get them. It's just another way you can share your Jewish views with us. Speaking of which, if you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash jewishviews or on Twitter we are at jewishviewsuk. Now the CEO of Kisharon, Dr Beverly Jacobson, has recently finished an extraordinary feat, running the Arctic Ice Marathon. It was all in a bid to raise money for the construction of a home for young adults with learning disabilities. Community reporter Dana Toman has been speaking to Beverly to find out more about her achievement. Diana started by asking Beverly what inspired her to undertake such a challenge. The main thing was that I, I was turning 50 and I immigrated here from South Africa many years ago and I had a whole group of peers from around the world who were planning on getting together to do something for our 50th, a, a challenge of sorts. But the whole thing fell through and I was feeling rather disappointed. So I googled on internet, I put in my birthday, 18th November 2016, and endurance events, and up popped the Antarctic Marathon, and it kind of became a must-do thing. I'm extremely impressed. <laughs> Tell me, are you used to doing anything to do with Antarctica? About 30 years ago, I started running marathons, simply because at the time, I grew up in a house with three brothers who always try to push me down and so once we were watching a very iconic event in South Africa called the Comrades Marathon which in fact is an ultramarathon and I sort of made a glib remark that that was something I would like to do at some point and, and they laughed at me and said you could never do it so of course it had to be something I did and right. so I ran that in 1986 and in the subsequent years that followed and especially after having had children and, and struggling at home in fact with a disabled child I used marathon running twofold, one as a way to have a little bit of a break, but also then to start fundraising for all the causes that were supporting us. And I think that's what actually took me into the charity world, bizarrely. In 2006, I ran a couple of marathons, including the Great Wall of China Marathon. Good heavens. And unfortunately, though, suffered from a slip disc following that and, and needed back surgery. So for the last 10 years, I haven't, I haven't done anything of quite that extreme. I still am quite sporty and, and do, do the odd triathlon. But, How's the uh, back now? Thankfully, very, very good. <laughs> I've been an avid Pilates fan ever since. And, you know, that's really built up my core and, and kept my back really good and supple. Because this was a long, long run, wasn't it? It was Tell indeed. How long. <laughs> well, it took me six hours and 43 minutes. And yeah, it was a lot harder than a regular marathon. You, you know, you were dealing with lots of different things that you well, I should think the terrain is different for a start, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. I solid mean, ice? It, it, is so, it is solid ice. It's not, as, it's not as solid as you kind of imagine. I, I thought, sort of worried that I'd be slipping all over. It felt more like sea sand underfoot. 
so either it was like running at a low tide where, where it was quite firm or else you were sort of running at the top of the beach where your feet were kind of just dropping into it. You didn't have the same grip that you do on a regular surface, so it, it did feel quite hard on your legs. Special boots? Yeah, we were running in what are called a sort of trail runners. So they, they're kind of mountain shoes, so with lots of tread underneath. Yes, I can imagine. How, how many kilometres was that six-hour run? It's a full full marathon, so it's just over 42 kilometres, 26 miles. Wow. Yeah. So let's talk... Now, your daughter is... Talia. Talia. Let's talk a little bit about her and then how she connects to Kishoran. She's the first of my children. When she was born, she unfortunately contracted a group B strep meningitis at birth. Group B strep is an organism that doesn't really affect people except in the first two months of life. It's carried in about a third of women, and, and people aren't specifically a carrier. It just happens that one third of women are carrying it in, in the birth canal. And of the women who carry it, one in 10,000 babies actually succumb to it. It only causes an infection in those first two months of life, and the closer it happens to, to birth, the more fatal it is. The very sad thing about it is that it's completely treatable with antibiotics. And had they known I was a carrier and I would have been given antibiotics through Talia's birth, she would have not succumbed to it at all. I see. That's, uh, yeah. that's, that's absolutely but, tragic. So she, she had a very poor prognosis at eight months. They told us not to expect anything from her life. The first six or seven years of her life were extremely difficult. She, she's got quadriplegic cerebral palsy, a severe visual impairment and learning difficulties. And she was a very frustrated baby and screamed a lot. Uh, she's done remarkably well. She's now fully verbal, articulate, living around the corner in Golders Green and has a very active life outside of our family. She moved into supported living a year ago. Is and this due to Kisharon? Well, yeah, she is in a Kisharon facility. She is. She, yeah. Right. And for me, the right through her years when she was growing up was the worry about what her future would hold. And it's remarkable because I suddenly realized that as indispensable as I believed I was, I'm really not anymore. So, and, and I assume that she's one of many that have been helped by Kishiron. Well, we've started our supported living program only a couple of years ago, and it's grown very rapidly. We've got 22 young people now you? and a huge waiting list, which we're oh, trying to sure. fulfill. Obviously, the blockage is in, in housing stock. It's premises. Yeah, yeah. So, so that was the whole motivation for... How, when you did this run, how much did you raise? Well, it's still coming in. And, That's good. And I've raised well over £85,000 to date. Have you really? Yeah, which is exceptional because I, I, I never anticipated raising quite so much. And all of that will be going towards Kishoran? Yes, and I mean, we've got plans to build a house over the, or, or to acquire a house over the next year. Brilliant. And so we'll need that. That's just going to be the amount that's going to kickstart the whole project. Right. Now, hopefully, other people will want to contribute, having heard your amazing story. How do they get in touch with you or with with Kisharon itself? Have you got a website? We do yes. have a, a website. It's kisharon.org.uk right. and if you press the donate button we'll actually come up with uh, Bev's Antarctica run alternatively I do have a virgin giving page with my name Beverly Jacobson Dr Beverly Jacobson CEO of Kisharon talking to Diana Toman there about the incredible achievement running the Arctic Ice Marathon 
You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the program so far. Joining Adam Bradley and me today is founder of the Jewish Poetry Society, Judy Carberts, and homeopath David Needleman. The subject today is based on Kate's interview we heard a little earlier on. A new book that's been written by author Azriel Bermant called Margaret Thatcher and the Middle East uses recently declassified documents to offer a new appraisal of the Iron Lady's policy for the region. We thought we'd look at this further and ask how important is it for Israel to get the backing of world leaders? David, let's start with you. Do you think it makes a difference for world leaders to openly support Israel? Yes, I do. I don't think it makes a lot of difference to Israel, but it does to the rest of us. And Margaret Thatcher was a good example of that, wasn't she? Absolutely, yes. Who else would you say are good examples of Israeli friends, as it were? Well, it's difficult to be specific because in a lot of cases, those who appear to be friends on the surface, behind the scenes are not always, and vice versa. Judy, what do you think? I think that it's... As David said, it's such a huge subject, it's hard to know exactly, but if the leaders can be pro-Israel, so many people still don't seem to know the difference between being Jewish and being Israeli, and it influences them to be more tolerant of we Jews. We, we have people like David Cameron, who was the most amazing prime minister in that point of view. He was extremely pro-Israel. He was extremely pro-Jewish. And it's also the same, I think, about the current prime minister. She was actually having dinner with the chief rabbi on a Friday night when she was told that she'd become prime minister. Is that not so? That was the first first night that she had found out, wasn't it? That was yes. the first engagement yes. she had as prime minister-elect. I think David touched on Probably, to me, the most pertinent issue here is that it's not necessarily that leaders that support Israel are particularly that beneficial to Israel, but it is to Jews around the world and its perception of Israel. If a world leader comes out and supports Israel, generally that filters down through their nation. And well, we all know how bad a press we get, how the propaganda that we have to face. So anyone that supports Israel from a Jew's point of view, has to be beneficial, surely. Well, most of the leaders of the Western world, whether they want to or not, supports Israel and, and the Jews, if you like. But, so how, how do we quantify support? Because there's so many different ways of support. There are those that, that support them militarily, which I think is only America, France, Germany and the UK. Yes. But then beyond that, you've got people that support them technologically, people that support them purely because they're anti-Muslim countries. So there's a whole wide kind of variety of support for Israel. And I think Obama, he didn't support Israel, in my opinion. America did. And I think the feeling towards Israel and possibly towards the Jews probably wasn't quite so strong and positive as it has been because the leader filtered down his opinions. And that's why Margaret Thatcher was yeah. such an amazing Prime Minister, because she talked about the chief rabbi as being her chief rabbi, did she not? Which, yes. is, which is a fascinating thing. And they always say it starts at the top. And to be honest, anyone in America now who wants to be voted in has 
can't be anti-Israel because, well, we've seen with Trump, he's, he's very pro and he'll... And he got in. But this is very interesting because what happens, as we heard in an interview earlier in the program, which I did, that Israel is now on a terrible path because they may well take a whole lot of Palestine, which will completely destroy the two nations idea. Something I've always said that, unfortunately, the Israeli government, for want of a better word, has never been in any way influenced by world opinion. But as a matter of fact, to be fair, the, the Prime Minister of Israel, is Netanyahu, is totally against this idea. And he says it will cause the most terrible problems. He's right. It will. Uh, in the same way that the intransigence of certain things that happen in Israel actually make it bad for the rest of us in the diaspora. So will this mean... Let's hope it doesn't happen. But if this does happen, will this stop those pro-Israel, pro-Jewish, if you like, leaders and make them change their minds? Well, the difficulty is to distinguish between Israel and the Jewish people. Yeah. And this is what we as Jews are differentiating the whole time. Israel is a country, a democratic country, the only democratic country in the Middle East, which is a Jewish state, the same way that this country is a Christian state. This country bends over backwards to accommodate other religions. Israel, on the other hand, takes no notice of world opinion. If they actually had a reasonable propaganda side, a public relations side, then our discussion would be unnecessary. Yes, but unfortunately, it's very necessary. Because, <laughs> yes. I mean, yes, you, you've proved the point absolutely. Adam, what do you think? Well, I think... what. David said again about it's, it's public opinion on Israel. They don't seem to care as much about world opinion, but they should. And I think that's very much highlighted in the fact that so many countries, global countries that have supported or have shown some kind of ties or relations with Israel. You look at all those countries that have stopped diplomatic ties with Israel. Every single one, pretty much to a T, stopped those, those ties when there was an intifada, when there was the Six-Day War, the Yom Kippur War. Now, so many of those incidents, I think, were not sparked by Israel. I think the likes of Hamas, Hezbollah, they know that public opinion changes when there is an intifada, when there is trouble in Gaza. And it's proved by the way these countries pull away from Israel every time something like that. Yeah, happens. but this time it, it's not the Palestinians are doing this about this new law that's or try that the that the Israeli government is trying to pass, which their own Prime Minister Netanyahu is against, is very much an Israeli thing. And it will cause the most terrible, terrible disaster in most people's opinion. Quite opinion's bad enough. We don't need to do anything to make it even worse. And and what we're doing over and there possibly is. Yeah. But if it does happen, and let's hope it doesn't, if it does happen, it will mean that those countries which are friends of Israel are going to find it very difficult to go on being friends of Israel. Absolutely, as they have in the past. And also it will influence the voters in those countries. I'm thinking of France. And if things happen in Israel that reflect badly on the Jewish people around the world because people don't differentiate between Israel That's and Jews, trouble. then, of course, the far right in Austria, in France, in other parts of the world, 
is going to be more dominant. It's interesting you should say Austria because Austria, in fact, some people expected the far right to win the, the recent election and they didn't. No, that's right, they didn't, which is a godsend, really. Yes. Yeah, which has stopped the trend. But then you see you've got the universities who refuse to have Israeli speakers. You've got companies who will boycott Israeli goods. And that is going to increase if they build these settlements. Yes, so that's a, it's a very frightening thought. But are there going to be any leaders, as Margaret Thatcher was, who I, I think, if this were happening in her time, she would have still remained a great friend of Jews and Israel, or Israel and Jews. Do you think there are any leaders in the world today who would be Thatcherite, if you like? Well, I think Trump, well, he's unknown at the moment, but I think it's showing every every sign that he, he is for for Israel, for the Jews. How is he showing that? People keep saying because he's got a Jewish son-in-law. I've heard many different views of Trump. Trump is an absolute unknown quantity, though. We, I mean, this we'll discussion proves it. Exactly. It. We don't know his opinions on anything. Let's face it; he exactly. has just won an election, and he won it by saying what, trying to say what the people wanted you to hear what? him say. I don't, I don't, don't know even yet. know if he knows his opinions. No, he's I think he's changing them. What he said at the beginning isn't what he's saying now, and I think that's true. Well, the way I saw it, it was a PR stunt for him yeah, to promote himself, and now right. he's got into office. It's so to me, it's like the producers, the whole thing. You know, when they did their springtime for Hitler, and and they really didn't want to to make money of it. Well, I think with Brexit and with Trump, it's exactly the same thing. Neither expected to get it; they both got it, and now they're both saying. Well, what do we do with it? Now we've got it. For those who don't know, that you're talking about the, the Broadway show and yes, the sorry, film yeah. called The Producers. Yeah. Yes, with Mel Brooks. I think you're right. I, th I, th I was in two minds about leaving Europe. I was in two minds about who was going to win the American election. But I have to say that you have to admire Trump. Like him or hate him, you have to admire him. He used mm. the media... And he used it well. He spent virtually nothing compared to Hillary Clinton yeah. on, on advertising. She spent hundreds of millions of dollars. Two yeah. billion pounds worth of free advertising he, he got. It's, it's quite astonishing. It's amazing. Isn't it? And I think once he has now realised what he's put himself up for and what he's got... <laughs> Reality ...with <check. laughs> a Republican Senate and a Republican Congress, which means that nobody can vote him out, which means that any legislation he wants is likely to get through, I think that responsibility will actually temper the man and I think we're going to be all surprised by him. I hope you're right because in my view so. he's not a politician, he doesn't know how to run politics and he's going to be the leader of, of the most powerful country in the Western world. Yeah, but isn't it strange that 350 million people chose those two as their candidate? Actually, they, <laughs> yes, that is true. <laughs> if Trump used the media to get into office which we all know he did and he, he used it magnificently Amazing. then if he knows how to manipulate the media and he's pro-Israel surely that could but only is be a good thing for Israel, is he pro -Israel? do you know when, when he got in so many Israeli media outlets, people in, in positions of authority all came out and almost to a, to a man, to a person said this is good for Israel whether it's good for whether he's the best man to be president, they all said he's generally going to be good for Israel. I seem to remember your 
father-in-law, your American citizen father-in-law, saying to me quite recently, or just before the election, that he was not at all sure about Trump. But I think that is, again, because we don't know enough about him. I mean, we're, we're guessing a lot of projections of, of how he behave, who he's going to be in favour of. Personally, I think we have to be positive about it. It's the same with Brexit. I'm not pro-Brexit, but that's what we've got. So that's what we have to make the most of. And it's the same with Trump. We should, certainly as Jews and, and Israel, should open their arms to Trump because he's yeah. the leader of the free world. I spoke to Gosh, my that's scary, friend's isn't it? <laughs> son, my friend's son, who's a very wealthy New Yorker now, and he, um, well up in the shawl and a businessman, and he and all his wealthy Jewish friends, they all of them, there's a lot of them, they all voted Trump and they were all celebrating when I last spoke to them. So are you saying that if this thing that we were discussing a moment ago about Israel possibly putting people onto onto Palestine land. Are you saying that Trump would be pro that? I think he might give some advice. Yeah. Very quietly. To the Palestinians? To, to, the, to, the, Israelis, to the Israeli government. He's not a politician. He doesn't go round the houses. He says it straight. And I think he'll talk straight. Which and I think he will influence. But what about those people? I mean, none of us know. But what about those people who say he's not as pro-Israel as some people think? I think he'll become that way even if he isn't because he's going to be the leader of the free world. He's going to be the president of the United States of America. He's not the kind of man that's going to want to do four years. He's going so to want to do eight. So you were saying that like Obama, who was known to be not terribly pro-Israel, he had to be because the rest of America said he had to be. Absolutely. Do you really believe that? Yeah, I do. And do you believe that's the same in this country as well if we didn't have a, a pro-Israel prime minister present? It would be the same. Mm, not so much. In France, if, and the way things are going in, in, the, in the world at the moment, it is eminently possible that France will have a very, very right-wing president in a few months' time. What would happen there? Well, uh, well we've already uh, seen what's happened exactly. in Paris. There, there's, there's going to be, if that is the situation, if that's what happens then there will be a huge exodus from France. And I think we shouldn't forget that there will be an exodus of Muslims, and I think the Muslims will suffer as well in France. Yeah. Oh, and yes, It's not they just will. the Jews. No, no, yeah. it's, it's all the Semitic races. I yeah. mean, everybody forgets that anti-Semitism isn't anti-Jew. Yeah. It's yeah. anti-Jew and anti-Arab. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there we are. They will have to leave it, but it's, uh, it's an open question, and there we are. Anyway, my thanks to our guests, founder of the Jewish Poetry Society, Judy Carberts, and homeopath David Needleman. Please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com stroke Jewish Views or on Twitter, we are at Jewish Views UK. Well, it's time now for our rabbinic thought for the week and this time it comes from Rabbi Aaron Goldstein from Northwood and Pinner Liberal Synagogue. Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, ruler of the universe, who did not make me a slave. A Jew who prays in the morning begins the day with a variety of appreciations of life, including this one. Even the secular Jew on the whole will wake appreciating the gift of freedom 
and the opportunity to go to school, to work, to play or pray, and to do all of that at liberty in the UK. Our people have experienced many episodes when this was not the case. Daily and most powerfully at Pesach, we recall this through the motif of slavery in Egypt. Yet the bracha is not an excuse to gloat at our good fortune. It is a reminder that modern-day slavery exists. This week's Sedra Vayetze accounts Jacob's transition from voluntarily entering servitude for Laban and then the subsequent indentured servitude that Jacob has to endure to pay for the privilege of actually marrying Rachel. The Torah allows for slavery of fellow Israelites and Canaanite slaves. The former have some means of emancipation, the latter not. The rabbis codified these laws into halakha. Although there were some protections, slavery was accepted. In this country, we participated in the hideous mass slave trade of the late 16th to 19th century, enriching ourselves by enslaving Africans and shipping them en masse to the most horrendously inhuman conditions of servitude. This legacy still blights American society and our history. To say nothing of the barbaric treatment of humanity today in many areas of the world, let us continue to focus on this country. Despite the existence of Article 4 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, that no one shall be held in slavery or servitude, and that slavery and the slave trade shall be prohibited in all their forms, and also this country's Modern Slavery Act, we know that modern-day slavery exists. If we care to look for it, we can see it when we get our car cheaply washed, and we will witness the fact that over 13,000 people in the UK are recognised as living in slavery. One hates to think how many more are unrecognised, many as trafficked sex slaves. It should be a source of pride to the Jewish community that saw more synagogues than ever mark Human Rights Shabbat this weekend, that the Jewish charities and campaigning organisations René Cassin and Tselem are leading our call to end modern-day slavery. If you do no more than look at their websites this weekend, that will be something. But they would, of course, appreciate your participation in their campaign, even with a simple tweet or like. Everyone has the right to wake up in the morning and thank God that we were not made slaves. Let us enforce that right for all. Thank you to Rabbi Aaron Goldstein from Northwood and Pinner Liberal Synagogue with our thought for the week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks to our guests, Anat Ben Nun, Azriel Bermant, Dr. Beverly Jacobson. Thanks also to the Schmooze team, Judy Carberts and David Needleman, and of course to you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget the team, including our producers, Phil Dave, Adam Bradley and Sue Greenberg. You can always listen to the most recent edition of The Jewish Views by visiting the Jewish News website, jewishnews.co.uk. And you can listen to all previous editions by searching for us on iTunes. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Clive Roslin. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.